Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. We're sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights. And if you like the sound of what you hear on our podcast, you might also want to consider our book, Sending the Elevator Back Down, What We've Learned from Great Women in Compliance. Lisa and I published this book last year with CCI Press. And I would like to say it was more than a little help from our friends who are amongst the wisest, smartest, kindest, and giving people in the compliance world. I like to think it's symptomatic of what a friend told me after attending my 21st birthday party. He said, Mary, I had such a great time meeting your other friends. You know what they say, cool people know cool people. Well, today's guest is yet another brilliant woman in compliance, and I'm pleased to present to you Karen Moore. Karen, please tell us about yourself. Thank you so much, Mary, and I'm really honored to be here. It's such a fantastic podcast that the two of you run. I enjoy it each and every session. Thank you. Um, So I'm the Chief Compliance and Privacy Officer at Unisys Corporation, which is a U.S. publicly traded uh, technology services company operating on a global scale. And I got here through a very twisty, windy path, which I find is common to a lot of my compliance colleagues. Um, And if you'll just allow me, actually, I've pinpointed it, started all the way in high school um, when I was about 14 and my high school had a language, foreign language requirement. And um, bear in mind, I'm a Cold War baby and the school offered Russian. And I thought, oh, how cool would it be to walk around with a textbook that had Cyrillic letters on it mm-hmm. instead of, you know, the normal French or um, or Spanish or Latin. And um, that was really the start of a twisty, windy path that got me here today mm-hmm. um, because I really enjoyed Russian and um, continued on in college with it. Uh, became a Russian major sort of by accident. Um, I wanted to be a biology major, which was Mm -hmm. going along really well until I hit um, kind of advanced biochemistry and realized I had zero talent, but great interest um, in in the sciences. Um, And and the Russian department really saved me by saying, hey, Mm -hmm. look, go to Moscow for a semester, come back, write a thesis, and um, you can be a double major. So that's kind of what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And that landed me in a U.S.-Soviet cultural exchange organization, Um, One of the board members was a professor, law professor, who specializes in Soviet law. So he said, oh, you know, cultural exchanges are the first thing to fall apart when when relationships go. So you should come do do law, be my research assistant. So I did that. And then um, after after law school, I went to go work for the Moscow office of uh, international law firm. Um, And from there, I got cold called um, by uh, Philip Morris, the tobacco company. They were looking for somebody to head up their Russia law Mm. department. And then they called me again and said, come to Switzerland, which is our global headquarters. And um, so I did that for a while. Um, And, and at that point I was heading up this central Europe and worldwide duty-free Um, law department. Mm -hmm. And Central Europe was slowly starting to dissolve because half of the countries were going west and half of the countries Mm -hmm. were staying east. And the company decided we're going to just get rid of that region. And and there went my job. Um, Mm -hmm. So the general counsel 
said, please take on compliance for a while while we figure out what to do. And Mm -hmm. my first reaction was, I thought I was doing pretty well. Why am I being punished by oh, being sent over mm-hmm. to compliance? Now, bear in mind, this was this was about mm-hmm. 15 years yep. ago, right? Yeah. Um, and compliance was usually, um, in my experience, something that was given to a very senior person who's getting ready to retire and who's mm-hmm. maybe blocking the promotion of other people. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I, and he said, I think you're going to enjoy it. I think you're going to enjoy it. And he was so right. Um, and I haven't looked back. I've been in compliance ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, when I moved back to the States because Philip Morris had divest, had uh, spun from its parent company and had no U.S. business, I found myself in the you know job search and ended up at NASDAQ um, helping set up their corporate compliance program. Obviously, their regulatory compliance was so buttoned up. Um, Mm -hmm. But so that was fun. They were expanding um, globally. So I enjoyed that. Um, But then I got a call from um, a friend of mine who's a partner in a law firm and said one of their clients had gotten into some trouble and was under an administrative agreement with the Department of the Navy. And part of the agreement, um, in addition to a monitor, was to really get their global compliance program um, ship shape, so to speak. Mm. Um, so that sounded really fun. So I went to do that um, for a bit. And then the venture capital um, company that owned that was a shipping services company. Um, they decided to sell. And so I got a call like, you know, just just stand down. We, you know, we've wrapped up the administrative agreement. You've done a great job. You know, just collect your paycheck and enjoy yourself because we're, we're looking to sell the company. And mm-hmm. I said, well, that's not really interesting to me. So Mm -hmm. I went looking again and Mm -hmm. ended up at at NASDAQ. So um, I'm sorry, at at Unisys. So really twisty, windy path that started, Mm -hmm. I swear to God, with Mm -hmm. thinking of Russian as a language, uh, as a a fashion accessory. (laughs) My my little little textbook around um, that one decision led me to where I am today. So I'm sorry, that's a a very long-winded way of saying I've had a fabulous career so far and I, I can't wait to look around the uh, the next corner. Absolutely and I was going to say that it seems to have been um, a wish to look cool with mm-hmm. your textbook <laughs> as, as how you got to compliance. So I don't think many of us um, would necessarily describe ourselves as cool or that we um, were trying to, to get here with that intent in mind. So <laughs> certainly an interesting one and I think as well Little decisions that we make, um, but I, I, I often refer to compliance destiny, as you may know, and how just the right the right type of people often end up in compliance. And so that little uh, sliding door moment that took you to where you are now um, was probably uh, one of many that had you not taken that one, I'm pretty sure you would have ended up with us anyway, but awesome to trace that back and and, and hear the story, Karen, that's great. So today's episode is really a hodgepodge of questions that don't have any set theme except for the fact that I wanted to hear Karen's perspectives on them. So I'm giving you all advance notice that I'm going to chop and change between all sorts of topics. Karen, I I love that you're fluent in Russian, but you're also fluent in French, as I understand it as well. Um, and uh, you got to use your language skills on the ground while working in Switzerland and and Russia, as you outlined for us. What's your favorite compliance story from your time spent working overseas? Oh, Mary, it's such a a tough one. And again, if I can um, 
you know, go a little bit to the side of your question. I had mm. a few instances, um, and because you mentioned language, there um, mm-hmm. at least two of them are language related. That taught me so much about how you learn about a culture from so many different perspectives. And mm-hmm. one of them was when I was leaving Russia. I'd been there for um, about nine years, mm-hmm. um, and I had spent several of them at at Philip Morris building up the Russian law department, traveling around quite a bit. Um, dipping my toe into compliance um, along the way. And uh, at my leaving party, one of the new people in marketing came up to me and said, you know, I always thought that your Russian was very good. And I, you know, oh, thank you so much. And being mm-hmm. very modest, or, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, studied for a long time. She said, but, mm-hmm. but in your going away speech, you said you'd actually been here for nine years and that you'd studied it in college. And really, it should be so much better. <laughs> and <laughs> for me, I loved being, you know, kind of, you know, the rug right out from under me. Mm-hmm. It was such a Russian thing to say. It wasn't meant as an <laughs> insult. It wasn't meant as anything other mm-hmm. than um, an observation and one that mm-hmm. is is so true and um and and that constant lesson of humility mm-hmm. um, when you're working in compliance in a global uh scene is so critical to making mm-hmm. sure that you don't get too big-headed about what you can do and what you know um, because there's always somebody that has a completely different perspective um and along the the same vein, you know, I was a I, I was a little bit disingenuous because I said I I took Russian because I thought it was cool, but I'd also mm-hmm. been taking French for a long time mm-hmm. in school, and I and I hung on to the French because I, I love languages. Mm-hmm. Um, I even took a semester of Italian um, that was offered by my high school by the Spanish teacher who also spoke <laughs> Italian and who said if you've had four years of a Romance language, mm-hmm. we will do a one semester romp through Italian mm-hmm. because we won't spend time on the grammar, and I think we read Don Giovanni libretto for pretty much, he's a big opera um, mm-hmm. aficionado for, for the whole semester. So I, I love languages and my French was, was not bad, but it was never really good. I'd never mm-hmm. lived in a French speaking um, country. And so I was really happy when um, Philip Morris moved me to Switzerland, that it was in the Francophone um, section of Switzerland. And I was able to drag up every word of high school French that I'd known. And, you know, we were in Switzerland for 12 years and Mm. um, I used French quite a lot, not so much at work, but, you know, in day-to-day life. And um, I was feeling pretty confident in my, um, in my French. And I went to Paris with my husband for a weekend and Mm -hmm. connected with a former colleague from the um, Baker McKenzie Moscow office who was Mm -hmm. French and was living in Paris and had always um, given me a very hard time about my bad French. So we went out Mm -hmm. for lunch and I, um, you know, had a conversation with the waiter about my order as one does in Mm -hmm. France. You can't simply order something off the menu. (laughs) You have to discuss its, you know, origin story. Um, And and the waiter went away and, and Philippe looked at me and he said, um, you know, I always thought your French was so bad. And, and there I was waiting for the big compliment. He said, he said, now you speak bad French with a Swiss accent. <laughs> it's like, again, same feeling, <laughs> never to get, never to get too confident, but I thought it was also very French. Um, so it, it's not directly, you know, great learnings mm-hmm. of compliance, compliance stories, but so many 
different observations about culture and your own perception of who you are within that that culture. And I've I've learned so much um, just from being places and Mm -hmm. and observing and and questioning my own um, set of assumptions. Um, Certainly Mm -hmm. when when we touched down in Moscow when I was a student and we were going on this um, one semester um, program my junior year, um, and and it was 1983, so again, still Cold War, and the, the bus driver took us from the airport past Red Square to get to our dormitory. And I realized that I had such an image to the extent I'd even thought about it at all of Moscow as gray, concrete, cold, you know, here's this Mm. magnificent September day with the sun Mm -hmm. shining and people out on the street and eating ice cream and red square with its domed and gold and glittering. And it, it it just makes you realize how much unconscious and subconscious Mm -hmm. perception you have about the world that, that needs to be challenged um, Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis, which which is what I love about compliance. I, I warned you, Mary, that I would go off on completely no. irrelevant tangents. <laughs> As someone who is a bit of a career expat, um, this is really relatable for me. Mm. And I shudder at the thought of how narrow-minded I would be now if I had continued on the same path that I always assumed that I would have living in Wellington my whole life. It's um, what I had sort of planned on and and doing an overseas experience as we call it in New Zealand and I think Australia too is pretty typical because you know we're so isolated from many other countries and so even though it was the norm I initially had no interest in popping overseas uh I was very happy in my own little bubble and uh it's almost physically painful for me to think about how much I would have missed out on in terms of experiences in terms of understanding different perceptions and and you talked about you know challenging your own beliefs and then making room for others right so sometimes uh it doesn't necessarily mean that you do away with your own belief but making room and being conscious of others beliefs that can coexist side by side with mine that was I think one of the most fulfilling parts for me uh and also your your story um is relatable and in terms of I think what I like to think of as reframing. So in uh, in Western culture, we tend to think that if you comment on someone's weight uh, in terms of putting on weight in particular, that's quite a negative thing. And in fact, I would suggest that we would typically shy away from that type of discussion in a business context completely. But when I lived in uh, Singapore, it was very common for colleagues to say very objectively, oh, you've you've put on weight or, or the opposite, oh, you've lost weight. And it wasn't with any kind of compliment or derision. It was just as, as you know, oh, you've got a new haircut. Oh, you've got new glasses. Um, and so I, I think if I wasn't used to that, um, then it would be easy to take offense to that and, um, you know, make it spiral out of control in terms of being an issue. But um, understanding that different cultures communicate in different ways and what we uh, may think of as being uh, abrupt or overly direct may be a negative Uh, it's often not meant to be at all and so being exposed to these different ways of communication I think is is valuable for the compliance officer and you don't necessarily need to live in a million different places for that just keeping an open mind and being willing to assume good intentions a lot of the time. 
hundred percent. And I love that you um, talk about framing because it really is a question of, of framing situations within their construct. And it, it's caused me to look at events in the U.S. Um, in a completely different mm-hmm. way than I might have. So even in my own country, reframing my perspective, listening more, um, mm-hmm. observing more and thinking things through more, not, not only taking my, my personal history um, mm-hmm. and bringing that to bear. So I absolutely agree mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. As an adjunct professor, your job is to teach students about compliance, but so often when we seek to give something away, we often get something in return, not necessarily knowing it initially. What is something uh, that you have learned about compliance during your efforts to impart information to others? Oh, so much. And and I only hope that they're getting as um, good as I'm receiving. Um, so yes, I teach a, a course in uh, corporate compliance at the Fordham University MSL program. And um, I have a really diverse group of students each term who are pursuing this degree. Most of them are working full-time, so they're bringing their own perspectives um, to bear. So one of the, the really gratifying and, and good learnings from this experience has been diving back into academia. Mm-hmm. Um, compliance can be very academic and mm-hmm. we all work really hard to step out of that ivory tower and mm-hmm. be really practical and be, be business friendly while still um, identifying and mitigating risks. So in some ways it's really been um, instructive to go back to our roots a little bit and look at case law and Mm -hmm. and the legislative basis for compliance and why do we have compliance at all. Um, And then to have that perspective from the students, the questions they ask and the perspectives they come with, it's been very eye-opening to have those academic and more theoretical conversations with people about, well, why is this? Why should this be? What about the, the um, anti-money laundering imposition of requirements on, on corporations. Should it be a, a corporate function or a government function to prevent organized crime um, and, and money laundering? Why should corporations take that on? What is the purpose of a, a corporation through case law and, and through different acts and requirements? So um, I, I've learned tremendous amounts. So the, mm-hmm. the ability to dive back into the law, you know, kind of our origin story, if mm-hmm. you will, and and then to hear from people who are new to these, um, the, this way of thinking about a corporation and how a corporation acts in society. It's been um, a fabulous journey. I, I can't wish it enough on, on everyone is to, to teach from time to time. Um, it, it's been, again, another uh, experience in humility where you're teaching mm-hmm. people who are smarter than you are. It's a good, good feeling. That I don't know about, but um, I will <laughs> skate on by that. <laughs> uh, I know that you're very strong on the data privacy side, which is relatively rare for someone based in the United States. Um, some of you may know data privacy was one of my very first areas of practice in little old New Zealand. We have had a data privacy regime in place since 1993. I think that the US could reasonably see a federal privacy law implemented within the next decade. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on the future of data privacy in the United States and beyond. Mm. So, well, first of all, from your mouth to the um, legislator's ear, uh, 
we desperately need a federal privacy law. It's daunting to think about the 50 states all coming online one at a time and mm. looking at each other, but not always listening to each other and, mm. and implementing different regimes that you're trying to um, to comport the way. It feels a little bit like back to the future, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, Pre-GDPR, when um, you, uh, you had just 25 member states trying to implement um, laws under under the regulation, I'm sorry, under the directive, mm-hmm. um, rather than the regulation, and so 25 different iterations, and now we've got 50, and, and there's no guiding principle. So, um, yeah, it's <laughs> I find data privacy a real breathless experience, mm-hmm. and I, I'm mm-hmm. sure, Mary, you've you know, been in it for, for such a long time, and you say little old New Zealand, but New Zealand just implemented major changes to did, their yeah. privacy regime. I've been in fact, just on a call last night with um, my colleagues in Australia trying to mm-hmm. convince one of them to take on the DPO um, for New Zealand mm-hmm. um, responsibilities because it's important that we we get that button down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I find privacy fascinating and daunting. Um, it's a lot of closing the barn door after the horse has bolted. Um, mm. I think it's regulators trying desperately to wake up and realize that they need to do something about how personal data is handled and, and protected. Um, but it's too late in so many circumstances. We've all mm-hmm. put so much of ourselves out there voluntarily, not thinking of, of the consequences. And then working in a technology company, data, data privacy is incredibly important to us. Um, and I work closely with our emerging technology technologies group. And, and there's so many fascinating issues beyond the regulatory on, on how biometrics is being used. What about incorporating artificial intelligence and, and the mm. inherent biases that you can hardwire mm-hmm. unintentionally into, into that and the kind of disastrous consequences. And mm. then you have the regulators struggling to keep up with the technology. It's mm-hmm. um, it's an incredibly interesting field. And, and I find sometimes wearing two hats is a little bit schizophrenic. <laughs> Well, I um, I think that's right, uh, absolutely. And I would love to share with the audience for a moment one of the things that I'm most proud of about the um, revisions to the New Zealand data privacy law that you mentioned. So something that I, I think is trailblazing as I've not seen this in any other jurisdiction is that Section 100 of the uh, New Zealand privacy law, which was uh, amended in uh, December of 2020, provides for apologies without accepting liability. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was my job uh, many, many years ago to settle and mediate uh, data privacy disputes in New Zealand. And I would say anecdotally, you know, there's a reason why we use the word violation with privacy a lot of the time. It's very emotional when someone feels like there has been an intrusion or a breach on privacy because it is, by its very nature, personal. And so um, because of that deep level of emotion that's associated when something goes wrong, Um, it makes sense that a lot of the time people just want to feel heard. They want an opportunity um, to talk about how they were wronged and to receive some kind of acknowledgement of that. And so often in the legal world, we shy away from apologizing. I remember in a retail job that I had when I was um, at law school, the employee handbook said, Um, If there is an accident in the store, do not say sorry. 
and so that gets drilled into you at a, a very early stage. But when you think about it, there should be an ability to say, I'm sorry that you're hurting. I'm sorry that this has happened to you. That does not equate to, I'm sorry I caused this. I'm sorry I am guilty. Those are two different things. And so I really like the fact that New Zealand has legislated for this. And I think it is symptomatic of the very human side of leadership that we've been seeing in my country over the last several years um, with a leader in place who has taken on traditionally feminine traits in her leadership. And for years, we as women have been conditioned to not be feminine, but we know that being masculine goes against us as well, as Fernanda Baraldi talks about in the Sending the Elevator Back Down book. So I think this is a huge um, positive and I'm hopeful as a very touchy-feely person, um, but I think there is a great deal of value uh, when it comes to conflict and people feeling like they've been heard and, 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 and feeling like someone is acknowledging that. So thank you for noting uh, my tiny country's um, shifts, Karen. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I know New Zealand has uh, definite shortfalls as well, but that is something that I think we've done well and time will tell whether it's effective and whether other countries or areas of the law in New Zealand will choose to take it up as well. It's certainly an unusual provision, and I would love to think that it sets a standard, but something you said really made me think I've never considered the gender characteristics of a regulatory regime mm. and how that can be influenced by the political leadership mm. of a country. And that just seems like the perfect setup for somebody's PhD um, it, dissertation. Yeah. A, a fabulous, fabulous observation. I Is love that, Mary. As it happens, um, I spoke on a panel recently with a woman who works at the New Zealand Serious Fraud Office, and she has been conducting a study into uh, gender mainstreaming in anti-corruption regulators um, specifically. So um, that might be something that we can talk on further in the podcast in the future, uh, because as you note, it is really interesting and, and very topical for this particular podcast. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, 100%. And and I, I mean, uh, in the same vein, I also think um, it, it's interesting to see in the privacy space and maybe elsewhere how different cultural um, impetuses are taking a leadership role. So mm. the whole privacy space has been influenced by the GDPR. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's a really Europe-driven, this concept of mm -hmm. privacy as a human right, um, mm -hmm. which is so unusual in the U.S. when you look mm -hmm. at regulatory regimes. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I know a lot of people, when the GDPR was implemented, thought of it very much in the same vein as the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, that here's a global standard. We will mm -hmm. just apply this global standard and we'll be good everywhere. And I think it's been a little bit almost the opposite, that it's it sparked this philosophical storm mm -hmm. um, in various countries to say, what what is privacy to us? What are we mm -hmm. thinking? GDPR may be a jumping off point, but it's not the landing stage um, mm -hmm. for, for privacy. So it's an ongoing, fascinating conversation. Mm. Absolutely. I noticed that you are very generous at sharing compliance roles that you see. You, um, you share postings so that people in your network can benefit from the exposure. 
why is it important to you to send the elevator back down? Hmm. I don't, I don't really think of it as sending the elevator back down <laughs> so much as reaching up into this amazing world of um, talent out there and making sure that everyone's got their best opportunities, um, whether it's a, a big one or a small one. Um, and, and I do think that um, compliance is still a relatively young field. It's mm. growing um, enormously. It's benefiting from um, from diverse perspectives and backgrounds, um, mm -hmm. moving away maybe from that kind of that construct that you have to be a lawyer, that you have to um, have worked in, in that field for a long time, um, being very uh, cross-functional and multi-dimensional in, in terms of the, um, the knowledge that we bring to bear. So much fascinating uh, social science implications, even systems engineering kind of components to um, compliance. And so I think the more that I can, in my small corner of the world, help spread the world, word and the opportunity and get the right people in the right positions, um, the more the the whole profession benefits and and therefore I benefit. So ultimately it's a kind of a selfish set of, <laughs> of actions. <laughs> I would say spoken like a true great woman in compliance. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> What's something about managing a compliance program that you've learned the hard way? Mm, so many, <laughs> so many, <laughs> so many things. Um, I think the, the hardest the hardest lesson I've learned is I want everyone to love compliance um, in terms of its role in the corporation. Mm -hmm. I want everyone to think about what I do, um, take it all on board really seriously, do the right thing, not because there's a rule, but because um, it fits into our corporate culture. And, and what I learned the hard way was um, early on visiting a factory, um, talking to some people and trying to just do a little bit of a kind of in, very informal focus group round table. You know, why is this not resonating? Why is this policy still being violated? Why are the training records so low in this you know, corner of the world. And, and somebody looked at me and they, and they said, you know, <laughs> we have, we have lives. We come in for our shift at eight in the morning. We work our shift. We have mm -hmm. our breaks. We go home at four. We collect our paycheck. Mm -hmm. Yes, we want, you know, you know, kind of respectful workplace. We want it to be safe and everything. The rest of it, we, frankly, we just don't care about. We just don't care about. And I, I, I realize that sometimes you can't just get everyone to buy in and mm -hmm. drink the Kool-Aid and, mm -hmm. and say, yes, yes, this is so important to me. Sometimes people just want to know what they need to do and they want to get on with their with their mm -hmm. lives. And um, so again, an, yet another lesson in humility, but um, it, it was a lesson I took on board that um, compliance is not all things to all people. Um, and mm. you, you've got to space that out and, and manage your expectations um, accordingly from, from the top down to the bottom. Sometimes at the top, you want people to be thinking about compliance and ethics all the time in your mm -hmm. executive leadership. And of course they're not, they're trying mm -hmm. to run a company um, mm -hmm. and counting on you to intervene and to guide them and to speak up and get them to focus on things from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, a pretty unusual executive team that is thinking about the ethical and um, integrity implications of what they're doing on a minute by minute basis, the way you and I might do. Mm. Yeah, it's hard for us, I think, as people who genuinely believe in ethics and compliance. And I have this little um, campaign of wanting to make it sexy to people. And I know that it won't be sexy to everyone, 
Um, but there are ways to pique interest and accepting that I'm not going to be able to get to everyone at the end of the day and I have to be okay with that does take some learning. It does take some time to absorb and that humility and realizing that my function isn't as important to everyone as I would like to think it is. Uh, <laughs> so true. <laughs> it's a nice rite of passage. <laughs> Well, Karen, it has been delightful having you on uh, the show. You came highly recommended from multiple people and uh, it's a pleasure to know you and to feature your brilliance. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Mary. I've enjoyed every minute. (laughs) Well, to wrap up uh, today's episode, I have um, a little case study to share on team building and establishing rapport and getting to know team members during the pandemic. Um, Some of you may know I'm a real introvert at heart, so in many respects, I have truly thrived uh, during um, periods of of isolation that the the last year has brought to us. Um, But remembering that not everyone is like me, uh, I received a comment from one of my team members recently. Uh, He's a, a massive extrovert. He's new to the company. He joined during the pandemic. And uh, he really misses the socializing aspect with colleagues. And he said to me, Mary, can we please have more team meetings um, so that I can get some of that, you know, that interaction in. And I died a little bit on the inside, if I can be honest with you. I am on a constant campaign to decrease uh, the number of meetings that we have that that don't provide value or to shorten them so that we don't just end up filling time because it's been set for an hour or half an hour and we need to fill the whole time psychologically. And uh, uh, I struggled with this for a moment, I must admit, because I really didn't want more team meetings. Uh, As many of you know, I work in two different departments in my company, legal uh, and compliance. Uh, which means I have two teams, which means I have a lot of team meetings uh, as it is. Um, So what I came up with to get at the heart of what my colleague was really searching for, which wasn't precisely more team meetings, what he wanted was more interaction and to be able to somehow replicate the bonding that comes with those after work drinks or going out for lunch together. Uh, So what I did was... uh, create spaces in our team meetings, not every single one, but every second one would be a focus on a team member. And that person was to send out their favorite food and drinks in advance and everyone else could select from those and come to the meeting with that person's uh, preferred treats uh, to join. And so it was like a celebration. And of course, you got to know them a little bit through uh, their dietary preferences. Um, And then you could ask that person any question that you'd always wanted to know, um, obviously within reason, but um, of course we're compliant, so no one was too daring. And um, and that was my way of basically a very contrived environment. You know, when we learn things organically from after work drinks, it's quite a slow process, but this really accelerated it because people were able to very directly ask what they wanted to know. And we learned a great deal about each other and, uh, that that seemed to work well for us. And in the meetings in between times where we, of course, wanted to work on our substantive matters, uh, we would do a quick round robin icebreaker. Uh, as an example, one of the questions that I asked my team to think about in advance were, uh, please come prepared to share your top three to five personal values 
with each other. And so really getting at the heart of what makes each other tick and where our differences might be. Because when we understand where people's motivations are, we're better able to understand the rationale. If they do something that we're like, that's a bit curious or uh, that got under my skin a little bit, sometimes knowing what's important to them provides explanation. Um, so that was was my way of, of trying to conserve and not add to the number of team meetings. And I hope you will be pleased to hear um, that uh, the, the team member who, who wanted to, to seek better connection, he felt very happy with the, the solution. So it might be worth giving a try, especially if you've got new team members. And Karen, I know that you've uh, got a lot of global uh, staff. So if you're in a, a situation like Karen, not that Karen needs to take uh, advice from me, but um, it uh, may be an idea to try for our global colleagues. That's all for today. Uh, Lisa and I thank you very much for listening in and look forward to seeing you at our next episode. Take good care, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.